Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. As Christians, we rejoice in the glory of God, especially regarding our salvation. Paul gives us great confidence in the beauty of our salvation in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We did a study on this last year when we went through the book of Ephesians. But Paul says, in him, of course referring to Jesus Christ, he says, also we have obtained an inheritance. And then he goes on to say, being, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That inheritance that Paul speaks of is ultimately fulfilled in the culmination of everything that heaven has to offer. The same glory that was afforded to Christ is also afforded to us. The righteousness of Christ is afforded to the believer. The joy of Christ is afforded to the believer. And the relationship that Jesus Christ has to the Father is also extended to the believer. Everything, the Bible says, that was given to Christ by the Father is also given to us as believers. But our ultimate redemption will not take place until our earthly bodies are turned into glorified bodies. If you were to drop dead now at this very moment, and I pray that that does not happen, of course, but if you were to do so, your physical body, your outer shell, so to speak, would remain there in the pews, but your soul, your spirit, if you are a follower of Christ, would be reunited with the Father in heaven. But it's not until an event later on in which Jesus Christ comes back to get his bride, the church, so to speak, which is the body of Christ, that our bodies will be changed into this corrupted, unglorified state into a glorified body, that event known as the rapture. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, this is Paul talking. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. At that moment in which the dead in Christ will rise first will be the time in which our corrupted bodies will be turned into a glorified body. John further explains that our full glorified state in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. This past Friday afternoon, I had an opportunity to attend a Bible study. with. Uh, it was primarily made up of older men whom I love to surround myself with because they have so much wisdom that I can glean from. But it's mostly older men here in Chapel Hill, and it was located at one of the churches in Chapel Hill, and they had a guest speaker who was fantastic. And he was speaking on this subject of suffering, and why does God allow suffering to take place? Now, us spiritual Christians understand the biblical answer to that, and that is to conform us into the image of his son, but that doesn't necessarily make suffering any uh, more enjoyable to bear at times. One of the examples that he gave was when he was in a seminary, or I, I believe it was a, a public university, but he was in the religious realm of that, and so he made it seem as if the professor that he had was not a follower of Christ. He was a person that wanted to test the faith of this young preacher. And so he sent him to minister in areas such as uh, the psychiatric ward of a hospital. And he was frustrated because it's hard to reason to someone uh, regarding the scriptures when they can't reason themselves on anything. And this man wanted to prove a point. 
And then he moved him over to the burn units of the hospital. And he was forced, this young man, to see these people come in with these grotesque um, parts of their body just burned off. And after this man ministered to these people and had to deal with that foul stench of burned flesh, that professor went up to this man and said, now what kind of a God do you serve now? A God that would allow this to happen to this person. And this young man said that in that moment, all he could respond was what he believed was the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, thank God that our bodies will not remain like this forever. Speaking of the time in which our body, with all its physical ailments, will be turned into a glorified state. Now I can admit, this can be a bit confusing for the Christian. The Bible talks about we're redeemed and how our spirit and our, our, our soul, our spirit is redeemed and how that has been fully redeemed now, but yet we still have this battle of this flesh because our bodies are still corruptible. What does it mean then after salvation that our spirit is fully redeemed, but yet our body remains in its original context? What does that mean for us? What kind of bearing does this have upon my own spiritual growth? As Paul takes the time to explain this dynamic between the spiritual struggle with sin and the freedom of Christ, he does so in all of Romans chapters 6, 7, and 8. We talked about this before and how the Apostle Paul, within those chapters, talks about this process of sanctification. But as we looked at briefly last week, in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verses 1 through 14, the Apostle Paul kind of gives an overview of what it looks like between your spirit being redeemed and you and your flesh still living in a corrupted state and what it means for us to be redeemed and how we are no longer underneath the bondage of sin. The Apostle Paul begins in verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, as we examined last week. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that as just as Christ was raised from the dead of the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. As we examined last week, those verses are not specifically talking about water baptism, but rather using that word and what it means in its original context, baptizo, as being fully encompassed or immersed to describe what happens to our spirit when we receive Christ. The Bible says that just as Christ went to the cross and died and crucified for our sin and had victory over sin at the resurrection, we too, when we receive Christ, have victory over sin and our spirit is no longer underneath that bondage. The Apostle Paul goes on to explain that. He says, uh, continuing in verse 5, he says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. He says, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is Paul saying? He's saying that as a follower of Christ, you have the power through the power of the Holy Spirit and the rejuvenation of the Spirit, your spirit, my spirit, to overcome the stronghold of sin. 
He literally says that when sin tempts you, you do not have to obey it in the lust thereof. So what do we do? Reckon yourself. In other words, understand yourself to be freed from sin and therefore yield your body over to righteousness. Now our first response as a Christian is, that's all well and good, Pastor Brandon, but why do I sin so much and so often? The Apostle Paul, whom we know is to be a spiritual giant, recognizes this. He says in Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 17, he says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. What the Apostle Paul says is, yes, I got it. I recognize it. The things that I do not want to do, I do. And when I do those things I don't want to do, what's happening in that moment is my flesh, or the law, so to speak, is overcoming the strength of my spirit. I'm giving into my flesh because I'm still in a carnal state in my body and not giving into the power of the spirit. However, the Apostle Paul also says, I don't have to because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the rejuvenation of the Spirit. So as Christians, the question then is, what do we do? What do we do when it comes to this power of sin? How do we successfully overcome the temptation of sin? What I love about examining the life of Christ is that God sent His Son to give us the model of what we can be, and I mean this respectfully because obviously we cannot be on the realm of deity, and we cannot be fully perfect here on earth. But if you were to look at what Christ did in his perfection, we as a Christian, if we were to take the words of what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans, we can have success over the temptation of sin because of our freedom from sin. So what we see in our next example of Jesus Christ is the example in which God gives us through Jesus of how when we are faced with temptation, we can successfully overcome that if we were to follow the example of what Jesus did here in Matthew chapter 4. So take your Bibles with me and turn to Matthew chapter 4 this morning. Because we understand Jesus was without sin, but Jesus also possessed a and I want to be very careful in what I say here, Jesus was not sinful by any means. But he did possess a sin-corrupted body. And what I mean by that is a human body in a human form. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not pass through, or for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize what it, with what? Our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Because Jesus Christ possessed an unredeemed, sin-corrupted body, sin-affected body, Jesus was tired, he was hungry, he was eventually experienced death. He eventually experienced that. Now, the Bible doesn't come out and say that he got sick. Okay, I'm not, So I'm not going to say he absolutely got sick, but we can assume that he may have fought against some sort of sickness, some sort of, not necessarily a disease, but maybe he got a cold here and there. If he got tired and he got hungry, he may have also experienced those, but the Bible does not tell us that specifically. Say, Pastor Brandon, why are you telling me all this? 
Because Jesus Christ, as we'll see in this temptation, also faced the same physical weaknesses that we face as well from a physical body standpoint because Jesus Christ did not possess a glorified body. It wasn't until he resurrected from the dead that he then had a glorified body and a glorified state. But he was completely 100% without sin. And so you have this dichotomy, that, 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 that this, this dilemma, or I guess you could say, this tension between God being, or Jesus being God and also being man and having that physical body just as what man does. And so to, if you haven't turned, so take your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. What we're going to see in this next section of Jesus is how he now is facing temptation and how he successfully overcomes that temptation and how we as Christians can follow this same example of Jesus and also overcome temptation when it comes our way, which it does every single day. Your temptation may be different or your weakness may be different than mine. More than likely it is, but we all face it at some point. But we as Christians having the power of the Holy Spirit can overcome that. At this point in life, specifically, Jesus had officially inaugurated his earthly ministry, as we saw this last week through baptism. Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized, and he assures John the Baptist that his baptism was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. And what Jesus meant by that is it was necessary for him to follow the will of God by becoming baptized. He was identifying with the kingdom of God. He was identifying with what God has called mankind to do. He wasn't repenting of any sin in whatsoever, but he was setting that example for man. That was a spiritual victory, so to speak. But have you ever been to a point in your life where you experienced spiritual victory or made a spiritual decision? And it's like the next day you're immediately attacked. You're immediately attacked in which Satan attempts to question you about the decision that you make for following God. Now we expect that as Christians. We expect that as human beings we're going to be attacked. But what we see in this passage itself is that not even the Son of God was immune to attacks by Satan. So let's read together with us, uh, together, Matthew chapter 4. We're going to read beginning in verse 1 down to verse 11. It says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give angels, his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up unto an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. My son is currently in the first grade, and he is doing very well in school, but there is one uh, Achilles heel to his school, and that is reading. It's a minor subject, right? Learning how to read is just minor when it comes to, to school, but he is off the charts when it comes to math and all these other things, but he struggles with reading. He does not like reading, but he's doing a little bit better now. But what we found with Kaysen is that he 
Uh, he's homeschooled, and so a lot of the stuff that he watches is online. And, of course, my wife does a great job in helping him alongside of that. Is he can hear the teacher make the sound of the word. He hears it. He, he, he puts the word together, and he does it. He does okay, but he always does significantly better if I was to read those words along with him. Or if I was to read, even though he can't read great, but if I was to read that section first and he hears how I pronounce those words, he always does significantly better. What we see in this example is the call that we have from the Father to overcome sin, right? We, we've had that ability through the Holy Spirit, and we're told to follow the commands of God. We're told to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. But what we see here is an example given by the person whom we are to follow of how to do so, so that we as Christians can also do the same. So the title of our message this morning is The Temptation of Jesus. As I mentioned before, Jesus, being both God and man, possessed the physical, sin-corrupted, sin-affected body of man. Tom Schreiner writes this. He said, The Son did not merely resemble human flesh, but participated fully in sinful flesh. That does not mean that the Son himself sinned, but that, he, but that he participated fully in the old age of the flesh, and that his body was not immune to the powers of the old age, sickness, and death. Satan understood the dynamic that Jesus faced. And so as we examine within this temptation account, Satan appealed to the human physical nature of Jesus as a means to tempt him, which brings us to our first point here this morning, and that is the circumstances surrounding the temptation. Now, I read this, I've read this passage like a thousand times. But it wasn't until this week, and maybe that's what happens when you're reading something or preach just a little bit differently. It wasn't until this week where I read that first sentence. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Does that look weird to you? Think about that for a moment. I've had this conversation with somebody recently about, does, does, does God put you in a, a situation in which forces you or allows you to sin more or less? This scripture seems to say that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into a point in which he would not be protected, more or less, if you were to read it at face value, so that Jesus would be tempted by the devil. That seems to contradict what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is supposed to be there to protect us. Why in the world would he lead Jesus into a position in which he could compromise his own being, fall into sin? Does the Holy Spirit do that to us? Does the Holy Spirit lead us into a position in which we are going to be tempted by the devil? You say, well, no, absolutely not. We'll read the story of Job. <laughs> read the story of Job. Does God allow someone to be in a position in which they will be tempted? And the answer absolutely, 100%, would be yes, he does. But let me be clear. God does not tempt us to do evil. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 13, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But he will lead you into a position for you to be tempted in order to test your faith. You say, well, what does this have to do with Jesus? Why did this take place with Jesus? Well, I read it to you earlier. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I dare say, according to Scripture, that the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the point to be tempted by the Satan in order to fulfill the very plan and the very will of God. And so, when we are led into moments of temptation, we're going through a trial, 
We know that God himself is not the author of, of the temptation, but he will guide us to a point in which our faith is being tested, and that's what we see here with Jesus. Mark then adds in verse 2, he says, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, what? He was hungry. So, well, okay, big deal, he's hungry. Well, what did Satan do? The first thing that he tempted Jesus with was food. It wasn't a woman. It wasn't money. It was what his physical heart desired more than anything, and that was food. Think about that for a moment. Satan knows exactly what your heart desires. You think God knows your heart? He does. You better believe Satan also knows you pretty well too. Your temptation and what will get you to fall is probably not the same thing that will get me to fall. And Satan knows that. He will take what your heart truly desires as a follower of Christ, which we understand it should be God, and I'm not saying it's not. Yes, it is, but we also are in flesh. There will be times where your heart desires money more than God. And so he'll tempt you, Satan will tempt you with a job that takes you out of going to worship on Sundays that comes with a better pay raise. And we can justify all the things in our life that we want in order to accept that. I'll give more money to missions, I'll be able to get involved in church on X, Y, and Z. But the bottom line is, if I was to accept this job and get more money, it would take me out in serving God on Sunday mornings. That's a temptation. Because that's what your heart desires. If you desire, maybe you're single, or maybe you're married for that matter, and your heart desires physical intimacy, and it's not happening right now, you better believe Satan's going to tempt you with that to get you to fall. In this case with Jesus, Jesus was hungry. He was physically weak. Also, when temptations seem to come to play, when we are physically weak, we're physically tired. He is spiritually strong, because not only is he God, he was fasting for 40 days, but he was physically weak. The first thing that Satan does is he tempts him with the food, which leads us to our second point. So the circumstances that surround the temptation are two things. Number one, the Holy Spirit led Jesus there in order to fulfill the plan and will of God. I'm never going to say here that if you were led into a moment of temptation, that God never led you there. He didn't tempt you himself. But if you were to follow the sovereign control and the leading of God, there are times in which God will put you in a position to test your faith. Not because he's a cruel God, but because he loves you and he wants to strengthen you. The second thing is that Satan utilized and manipulated the very thing that Jesus' physical body wanted more than anything, and that was food, and that's what he went with first. And so that's the circumstances surrounding it. But let's look at the nature of the temptation. And there are three things in which Satan utilizes to try to get Jesus to fall. He used the, 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 the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh. Those are really, as, as, as what John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the overall encompassing uh, things that describe the system of the world. John says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So with each reference, John refers to the avenue of the world in which our natural body desires. For example, the flesh refers to the overall sin nature of man that is in rebellion to the order and the commands of God. The eyes refer to the strategic avenue in which Satan uses to tempt mankind to rebel against God. He utilized this with Eve in convincing her as she physically looked upon the beauty of that uh, tree of knowledge of good and evil, which also brings up an interesting question. If God didn't want them to bite into that, why did he make it so beautiful? We could go crazy and try to figure all these things out with God. But again, it goes back to God's sovereign will and God's sovereign plan. Obviously, this tree was beautiful, 
And so Satan used that to tempt Eve. But bigger than that, Eve fell into the pride of life because she, what really convinced her was the fact that, according to Satan, she could be just like God and no longer need God. Satan used all three of these against Jesus, but obviously Jesus comes out successful and doesn't follow through. And we too, as Christians, can as well because we have the same power of the Holy Spirit residing upon us that was also uh, present with, with Jesus as well. So the first thing that Satan does is he uses the lust of the flesh to try to get Jesus to fall. Verse 4, it says, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be bread. Now, there are so many things happening within this one phrase. The basis of, of, of the temptation was the physical hunger of Jesus. Again, Satan understanding that he could not attack Jesus through sensual lust. He could not attack Jesus through prosperity. He attacked Jesus through the apparent weakness that Jesus was experiencing through that moment, and that was physical hunger. But notice what else Satan does. Not only does he attack the physical hunger of Jesus, he questions who Jesus was and the very will of God by urging Jesus to prove himself. Look at what he says in verse, in verse 4. He says, if, you can underline that, if you are the Son of God, then perform this miracle to satisfy your hunger. Satan knew who Jesus was. But he was trying to tempt Jesus to perform a miracle in order to prove that he truly was the Son of God. The Pharisees did this all the time with Jesus. They were trying to tempt Jesus to, to perform a miracle so that he could prove to them who he was. And what does Jesus do every single time? I am not here, and I'm saying this in a paraphrase, I am not here for your entertainment. That is not why I perform miracles. It's for your enjoyment. I perform miracles in order to fulfill the will of my Father and to establish the kingdom here. But, but, but let, let's continue to unpack this here. It was not the timing or is not the method in which Jesus could do in order to perform a miracle at that particular time. You say, Pastor Brandon, what do you mean? Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of his bondservant and coming in the likeness of a man. So God created Jesus as both man and God to experience what we experience physically. If Jesus was to utilize his divine power... Romans, uh, Philippians chapter 2 talks about Jesus Christ setting aside his divine deity, not becoming less God, but setting aside full access to it in, at times in order to fulfill the will of God. Think about it for a moment. If, if, if Jesus was to say, you know what, you're right, I am hungry, I do have the power to tell these rocks to turn into a stone, and he did so, he would be overstepping what he was supposed to experience from a human physical standpoint, because we can't do that. If we're hungry, we can't just say, you know what, make that bread and turn that into, in, in, into food for me. And so Jesus was setting aside that as well in order to experience what we experience here as human beings. Now you may ask yourself, how does this fall into the lust of the flesh category? A person that is controlled by their flesh is in rebellion against God. For Jesus to give in to the temptation of Satan and use his divine power to create food, it would be an opposition against the will of God. Therefore, Jesus would become a victim to the lust of the flesh. But rather than fall victim to that, Jesus Christ gives the perfect answer, which is the antidote to the lust of the flesh. He says in verse 4, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This first response out of all three scripture references that Jesus gives comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. 
The original context of this verse goes back to a time when God allowed Israel to hunger so that God could feed them with manna in order to teach Israel to rely upon God and trust in their needs. What Jesus was doing, first off, was demonstrating that he trusted his heavenly father to provide for his needs. He said, listen, I don't need to turn this in here because the father who told me he was going to take care of my physical needs will do so. And so I don't need to do this because the father promised that he'll take care of my physical needs. But the second thing that he demonstrated before Satan was this. I may be able to die physically because of food. I will die physically at some point. But food is not what's going to allow me to live forever. It is the will of God and the very words contained in Scripture. He says that is what truly brings life. Life everlasting, life eternal. What you are trying to convince me to do is satisfy a temporary uh, discomfort when in reality I am here to trust in the very words of God that bring eternal hope and security. And so the answer to that is no. So Pastor Brandon, bring this down to my level. Satan may tempt you with the lust of the flesh by giving you what your heart at that moment truly desires, and it may satisfy you for just a moment. The Bible talks about physical intimacy is good for just a season, right? Or sin, I should say, is good for just a season, and every sin that we commit is pleasurable for just a moment. But what Jesus says is, listen, that will bring you, the food will bring you temporary satisfaction, but I'm not here to trust in that. I'm here to trust in the Word of God, which brings me eternal hope and eternal eternal reward and joy. So that's the lust of the flesh. There's a second thing that Satan does, because that obviously didn't work. He moves on to the pride of life. He says in verses 5 through 6, And then the devil took him up into a holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Now, we don't know exactly where this was, but many scholars estimate that it was a pinnacle to uh, one of the corners of the temple that had a drop on, on about a 450 foot drop on the outside of it. And so that's where Satan was, or Satan and, and had taken the Lord, and the Lord is standing on the edge there. Satan says, Listen, jump, and if you do jump, then the angels will come and save you. They'll rescue you. Now, what is Satan doing? He's quoting scripture to him. He's quoting Psalm chapter 91, verses 11 through 12. Look at how good Satan is and taking the very words of God and using that on Jesus to say, listen, if you were to jump down, the Bible says you'll be protected. In Psalm chapter 91, the psalmist is talking about the protection of God. Many people refer to this as being guardian angels, and that's a whole other discussion at other point in time. And there's a show uh, back in the day that was clearly not theologically sound called Touched by an Angel, I believe. How many of you have ever seen that show? Okay, three of you, great. Um, it's basically talking about how guardian angels and all this kind of stuff. So I'm not here to talk about that, but I do know that the God has sent angels out to be able to minister to us. And so the scriptures are building upon that. And so Satan utilizes that against Jesus and says, if you jump, the angels will save you just as the scriptures promised. But here's a problem. Satan quotes portions of that verse, not the entire verse. Look at what Satan says there in, in, in Matthew chapter 4. He says, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up. That sounds pretty good. But here's what the original psalmist says in Psalm chapter 91. He says, For he shall give his angels charge over you, but then he adds that phrase, to keep you in all your ways. 
What's the difference there? The angels that are in charge over you within the context of this scripture here are there to protect you as you follow the plan and the will of God. It is not a means for you to test God and to test the goodness of God, which is what Satan is adding here. He says, if you jump down, then the angels are going to protect you. In essence, what he's saying is if you impose upon the grace of God, more or less, and you try to put God in the corner to protect you in order to do the things of God, there's a problem at stake. While it is true that God will protect you and send angels to minister to you, it's while you are serving the Lord and following his leading and following his will. Obviously, Jesus in this particular moment, recognizes what Satan's trying to do. And so he answers him in verse 7. He says, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Because that is exactly what Satan was doing. He was tempting God to protect him, even though it was out of the realm of, of, of what God had intended to do. And we do that as Christians often, right? God, I will follow you if you do this or god i'm going to step out in faith and yet we believe we're stepping out in faith but really it's not what god is calling us to do we're acting on our own will and our own ambition just praying that god will protect us through the whole means of it god you're a good god you're a trust god trusting god you're a forgiving god i want to do this i know you'll forgive me anyway and we're opposing upon god's grace and so we step out and now we're tempting god saying, God, you're going to have to forgive me anyway, or God, you're going to protect me, so I'm going to do my own thing, and hopefully, Lord, you'll give me your stamp of approval. That's tempting God. It's not necessarily following the will of God. But then here's the final aspect of what Satan does, is not only does he tempt him through the lust of the flesh and, and also through, the lust, uh, through, through this particular moment here about uh, tempting him through uh, the different things of his life, he says that the final temptation that Satan utilizes is the lust of the eyes. Matthew continues in verse 8, he says, Again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It's pretty clear how this temptation falls into the lust of the eyes category. He's literally showing him all the things that he will give him if he falls down and he just worships me. But don't overlook what's happening here. What does Satan say? Look at all these kingdoms. I will give all of these to you if you worship me. Is there a problem in that statement? It was never Satan's to give in the first place. It's not Satan's power to give him the kingdoms or the glory. The Bible makes it absolutely clear in, in, in John chapter 3, verse 35, that the Father loves the Son and gives him all things into his hand. It's God. So what is Satan doing? Satan is counterfeiting the very power and the blessings of God in order to trip up or attempt to trip up Jesus. And that's what he does with you. He says, I will bring you true joy, true satisfaction, lasting peace, hope forever. Satan uses those things that our heart desires to trip us up. He's counterfeiting the things only God can give through Jesus Christ. It's what he does with the world. Why do you think the world is so upset about God and Christianity? They think that if, 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 if we got rid of religion, if we attacked religion, we attacked this narcissistic in their mind, this God that wants to control your life, you would be so much more free and so much able to enjoy life. It, ultimately, it's not them saying. It's, it's them following to the victim of what Satan says will happen if they reject God. Satan takes the very thing that only God can give 
And he tells mankind that if reject God, then you can have those things when it's not Satan's to be able to give anyway. And that's what he does with Jesus. He says, if you, if you, if you fall down and worship me, you can have all of these things. In verse 10, Satan says, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and in him only will you serve. The only way to have true hope, the only way to have true satisfaction is by serving God and giving God your entire life. So what we see is Satan attacking all these three different categories. God responds to him. But the final point that we're going to look at here this morning is this battle plan for overcoming temptation, which we've observed all the way through. What does God do? What does Jesus do every single time he's approached by Satan to try to tempt him to fall? Jesus responds back in Scripture by utilizing that. Verses 10 and 11, I'll read it again. Jesus said unto him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What happens next? The devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. What ultimately caused Satan to flee? The resisting of Jesus through the use of Scripture. James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 7, to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. One of the reasons why we oftentimes talk about reading the Scriptures every single day, or as much as you possibly can for our devotions, is not just because it makes us feel good, or it's because it's a, a, a stamp that we can get, and, and God loving us more because we did this thing for God. That's legalism. It's horrible theology. But we read the Scripture in order to feast upon the words of God, so that when the attacks come and, the, and Satan goes after us, we can respond back with the truths of Scripture, ultimately resisting the devil and he fleeing from us. That's literally what the entire armor of the Lord is talking about. It is girding yourself up with the truths of Scripture. It is strengthening your spirit feeding your spirit so when the flesh comes, the attacks of the flesh come, you can overcome those temptations because your spirit is stronger and is more fed and healthier than your flesh. If you're constantly living on a diet of feeding your flesh, doing things that feel good, that are sensual, doing things that, that feel good, but that are opposite of what God calls us to do, then our flesh is always going to be stronger than our spirit. But if we reverse that and flip that script and starve our flesh by rejecting sin, and feeding our spirit through the truth of God's word, then when those temptations do come, we're going to be successful in overcoming that. It is absolutely 100% capable, we are absolutely 100% capable of overcoming temptation because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly the example that is given to us through Jesus. I understand we still have a sinful nature that will not be taken away from us on this side of eternity. But just like Jesus, we too can resist the devil if we take those temptations and we look to the truths of Scripture and respond back to those temptations in the times in which he is tempting us to fall.